Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Jesus, Jesus, oh, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Scripture teaches us the something about that name is that it is the name above all other names, and it is the only name under heaven by which men are saved. Think about that. If you're saved this morning, you're saved by that name, by that Jesus. That song should resonate in the heart of a believer every moment of every day that there's just something about that name. I like my name. My mom and daddy gave me a good name. Jason's been good for me. It's never done anything I didn't tell it to do. It's never brought any shame I didn't bring upon it. But it didn't save anybody. There's something about that name, Jesus. This morning, we gather together. We look to Paul's letter to the Corinthian church Examining this thought, Christ is Lord of all. Now this morning we're looking primarily to the topic and the idea of the resurrection. The order of the resurrection. The ideas around the topic of the resurrection. But at the same time, as with all scriptures, if we don't do a good job of pointing back to the main subject being that Christ is the Lord of all, including the resurrection, then we didn't do a good job of examining any section of Scripture. And as we dive in, I want us to remember that this church in Corinth that Paul is writing his letter to, they had some problems. Might I add, much like we do today, they had problems. They had discourse within the church of Corinth. Can you believe that? There was a group of people gathered together. They called themselves a church, and there was some disunity among them. Now, I know that's foreign to most of you. You've never heard of that. But I want to let you know that in some churches, even all the way back to the church in Corinth, and the church in Ephesus, and the church in Galatia, it was recorded that there was some discourse and there was some problem. One of the problems they had in the church in Corinth that Paul found out there were people that were looking to follow the teachings of one specific man. Uh, Some were saying, uh, I follow Apollos. Some were saying, I follow this one. I follow Barnabas. I follow this. Some were even saying, I follow Paul. And Paul was gone. And so even though they were being loyal to Paul, as he pens the letter, he writes to them and says, listen, listen, why would you follow me? Was I crucified for you? Did I die for you? Paul is essentially saying, why follow Apollos? Why follow Barnabas? Why even follow me? I'm not worthy to be followed. I'm merely worthy to present a discourse and an exposition to you about the one who died for you. You should follow Jesus. His idea was simple. Unless one of these men was crucified for you, had died for you, was buried for you, and was resurrected for you, then they are not worthy of following Only Jesus can make that claim. Another problem that that Paul presented was 
You guys have false teaching arising inside of your church. Paul says you guys are starting to adhere to some, some twisted doctrines, to some weird thoughts. You're starting to go back to thinking about things the way you did before you got saved, is what Paul is saying. And in that time, one of the great debates, one of the great problems that, that the philosophers of that time had with the doctrine of Jesus Christ was that they, they didn't have a problem embracing the fact that Jesus was Lord. We're talking about a time where Jesus had, had brought dead men back to life. It would be kind of hard to have said, listen, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, he's not really of God. They would have had a hard time saying, this one who, who died and appeared again, he's not really of God. Uh, he, they, they didn't even try to disprove that there was a heaven or that there was an eternal life. They, they couldn't try to disprove those things. But where they really struggled was with the resurrection of the dead. They really denied that there could be a true resurrection of the body. And that's what Paul and his disciples were teaching. The disciples of Jesus was teaching that there would be an earthly death, that there would be a physical resurrection. And so the church in Corinth was saying, listen, I don't have any problem in believing that Jesus is a Savior and that there is a heaven. But what I have a hard time believing in is in this physical resurrection. And so Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 begins to dive in to this physical resurrection and he begins to essentially teach them that it's not possible for you to say that you believe in Christ and then to say that you don't believe in the resurrection. It's not possible. You don't get to pick and choose which parts of Jesus and which parts of the truth that you choose to believe in. And so as we look this morning, we're going to be looking, as Paul dives in the plan of resurrection, he's going to begin at, at Jesus, and he's going to be running through what we call the consummation in theology. It's what we would call the consummation, essentially the results of God's plan of redemption. And Paul is going to show us in these verses how important the idea of the resurrection is to this redemptive plan. Please stand, if you're able, in the house this morning for the reading of the holy words of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and beginning in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. Let's pray. God our Father, as we dive into your text this morning, as we dive into your holy words God, we don't take lightly that it is a gift from you for our Holy Spirit to dwell among us. God, we thank you for the worship through song. We pray that we glorified you with every note and with every song and with every lyric. And God, now we come to your preached word and your taught word, and we pray that every word preached, every word taught would be of you, God. If there be one word about to be said, would you mute my tongue and deafen the ears of those in this house? 
God, would you bind every devil and every demon from our minds and escort it out the door that it came in with us now, that we would focus on you unadulterated for the next few minutes and that we would draw nearer to you as we look to your word. Father God, most importantly, may you be glorified. May you be increased. May you be magnified. And it's in your precious name that we pray, as all God's children said. Amen, and you may be seated. The first thing that we're going to see laid out is this idea that Christ is our Redeemer. Christ is our Redeemer. Uh, Paul dives right in. Now, I like Paul's writing. Has anybody ever, ever known anybody that just kind of said what they were thinking and thought what they said? You know that person, everybody's got somebody in their mind right now, somebody that the minute they think it, they're going to say it. Paul was that guy, right? It got Paul in some trouble, right, in, in Scripture. We've seen Paul say some things that he had to later try to figure out how to say them with a little more tack. I was having a conversation with someone this morning, and I said, you know this, this friend of mine, they, a lot of times they say things that are semi-intelligent, but they say them with such a lack of tack that it doesn't come across that way. It often comes across combative. Paul, as he wrote this letter, I feel like he got to this point. He was thinking about the resurrection. He was thinking about the church in Corinth and how they were denied and how they had the false teachings. And he decided, rather than me give a paragraph of introduction to make them feel better about their lack of belief in false teaching, I'm going to dive right in and just tell them this. And how's he started out? He said, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Lest you begin to think that there's not a resurrection, let me go ahead and dive right in and say, but now Christ is risen from the dead. He writes this first because in this time, it was an established historical fact for these people. There were eyewitnesses to the fact that Christ had risen from the dead. It had been affirmed and it cannot be denied now. It could not be denied then even more particularly. Back in verse 5 of this chapter, Paul had already said that after Jesus was resurrected, he said he was seen by Cephas or Peter. He was seen by the 12 disciples. Paul writes he was seen by around 500 folks. He even says most of them are still alive. And what he's essentially doing there, he's saying, listen, you can go ask some of those 500 that were there. They weren't his closest disciples. They weren't his closest friends. They're not going to lie for him. They're not going to tell a story about him. Go ask them. Most of them are still walking around. He said he revealed himself to James, his brother, and he showed himself to me, Paul says. What Paul is doing is he's establishing the fact Christ has risen from the dead. You can't deny that. It's a fact. They wouldn't have tried to argue it. And so he kind of establishes that fact. And he says Christ was resurrected from the dead. We know that because all of you can remember what happened on Calvary. Nobody has any denial that he died. All of you know that he was laid in the tomb. And then I just gave you a whole cloud of witnesses that saw him walking among the living. So you can't deny that he was dead. And then he was with us. And if, if that happened, now I'm not... The sharpest tool in the shed most of the time. But I can usually put two and two together, right? And if you put two and two together, if you had somebody dead and buried and then you had them walking around, you basically got to assume that somewhere in there they had to be resurrected from the dead, didn't they? You don't go from dead to walking without a resurrection somewhere in that. There was a raising that had to happen. 
And so Paul is essentially diving in. He said, you want proof that there was a resurrection? All you got to do is look at Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead. Something else Paul does here, though, that that is really where they would have had a big problem with it. And I want to point this out to you. I think it's important to the understanding of the text. That phrase that Christ is written, the way that Paul writes it when he says, but now Christ is risen. When we read that, we just read it as Christ is risen. Much like I might say to you this morning, Jason is risen from the bed. Not from the dead, from the bed. Jason is risen from the bed. I got up out of bed. It's something that I did. I might say that Irvin was risen from his bed. It's obvious that he was risen from his bed. He may still be asleep while I'm preaching. But he was risen from the bed. And it's a historical thought. But in the Greek language, there's tenses on the verbs that kind of tend to change the meaning. Now, for the lack of a Greek lesson that would take longer than most of you care to be here, and I probably wouldn't be a very good job of teaching it, let me just say that this tense in the Greek suggests this. When Paul says Christ is risen, he doesn't say Christ was risen, Christ did rise, Christ had done something. When he says Christ is risen, it's in what's called the, the perfect tense in the Greek, which gives a suggestion that Christ was risen, remains risen, and will be risen forevermore. He'll never die again. Why was it important that Paul would point that out? Well, many of them historically could have went back and say, sure, Christ was risen, but when Christ walked, he, he caused Jairus' daughter to come from the dead, so she was resurrected as well. They may have said, I remember when Lazarus lay in the tomb, and you got there, and you said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. He was resurrected from the dead. I remember the widow's son, Jesus, when, when Jesus would, would speak, and the widow's son would raise... And be resurrected from the dead. So so what made Jesus' resurrection such a special resurrection? Well, that all of them historically could say, Jairus' daughter was risen, but then died again. The widow's son was resurrected, in fact, by Jesus, but then died again. But as Paul writes Jesus, he says, guess what? Jesus was risen, is risen, and remains risen forevermore. He'll never die. He'll never be laid in another tomb. He did his work in the tomb. He defeated death. It's already done. The the stone was rolled away. He was ascended. He's in the right hand of the Father, and he's not going to die again. He's laid his life down the only time. And so Christ, our Redeemer, was raised forevermore. And then he goes on and he says, He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that term fallen asleep obviously means have passed away, those who have have deceased. So Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what does that mean? Well, everyone in that time would have understood the idea of the first fruits. I'm sure most of us do too, but, but let me just point it out to make sure. The first fruits were the first elements of a crop that you would harvest when the fruit would start to come in, when the, when the labor was starting to pay off, those very first crops that would begin to present themselves that you would harvest, those were known as the first fruits. It was understood in that time, what would you do with the first fruits of your harvest and the first fruits of your labors? You would give them as an offering to God. Why would you give them as an offering to God? Because by giving the first fruits as an offering to God, you would signify that you understood that there were going to be more fruits to follow. Does that make sense? You didn't need to hang on to them and hoard them because you understood that the first fruits were merely a symbol that there were more fruits coming, so to speak. 
And so the same here is with the idea of Jesus. Christ, he was resurrected from the dead. And he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus is the first. And it symbolizes that there's going to be a resurrection of the rest who belong to him. So he was the first one to be resurrected. And there's going to be a resurrection of the second and the third and the fourth fruits. They're going to rise after Christ. He's merely the symbol of the first. He's the the sign or the promise. And so if Christ is resurrected to live for more, forevermore, it is him who is our redeemer. Now, I want to make sure that, that we understand something because I don't, want to, I don't want to mess this up for anybody's thinking right now. This idea doesn't say that as believers when we die, we go to lay in a grave or in a purgatory or in a holding place or in some... Uh, some wandering track where we go run around in circles until our resurrection happens. We don't go to a waiting place. Because the same man Paul now, under the influence of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians, writes that when we are absent from our body, we are present with our Lord. And so, so kind of for, for lack of getting way too deep here, our, our spiritual self immediately upon ceasing to exist on this earth, our spiritual self goes to be present with the Lord. Our physical shell, our physical self, is going to be resurrected later to meet with our spiritual selves. So how do we reconcile with certainty that the actions of Jesus in verse 20 are even going to apply to us? Well, look at verse 21 with me. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ... All shall be made alive. And so so what Paul is writing, he says, listen, you know that sin entered the earth through Adam. Through one man, Adam. That's where it began. You can trace the sin back to your first forefather, to the first created man. And you can say that because of the sin of man, sin entered the world. Scripture in Romans teaches us that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death followed with it. We endure death, we endure sin, and it's all an inherited trait from our forefather, Adam. And so through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, but through one man, Jesus, through one man, Jesus, we all inherit the resurrection and the forgiveness of sins. Paul says this, he says, those who remain in Adam, they remain in death. They taste of death, the wages of their sin. And so how do we avoid tasting of the wages of our sin? If we are in Christ. How are we in Christ? through his grace, through his mercy, and through salvation, by crying out to our Redeemer to be counted as the redeemed. And so Paul is stating this idea. In Christ alone, we have a Redeemer. Only in the redemptive work of Christ, and through his perfect life and his substitution for our sinful life, can we have eternal life and be a part of his resurrection. To not believe in the resurrection is to not believe in in Christ, which is to live in Adam and be subject to death. So, first idea, that Christ is our Redeemer. Christ is our Redeemer. Second idea, we're going to look at the idea that the saints are redeemed in Christ. So, so the saints are redeemed in Christ. Who then, who are the redeemed? Who are the saints that are, that are redeemed by Christ? And the answer to that question starts in verse 23 with this phrase. But each one in his own order. 
This shows us that there's a specific plan, a specific uh, sequence of events. This phrase of order here is an idea of, of a military conquest where the general would deploy the troops in a specific order. The things were going to happen in this certain way. And so first there's Christ. The first fruits. First there's Christ. Then after that, all those who are here. And when's the timing? At his coming. So all those who are his, at his coming. That's when it happens. And so the idea at his coming is the idea of a presence, an arrival, or a fulfillment. So the fulfillment of the resurrection for those who are Christ believers is fulfilled when Christ comes again. So to deal with this subject, I want to make sure that we deal with this. What happens when a believer passes away? What happens when a believer ceases to exist on this earth? Hebrews 12 says that we have a spirit made of just men. A spirit of just men made. So how is a man made just? Only through the redemption of Jesus Christ. So what happens? Your spirit goes to be with the Lord. It's made perfect through Christ. It's there. It's present with the Lord. It is awaiting the bodily resurrection. This resurrection that comes after Jesus if we're a believer in Jesus. So this raises the question. I get asked this a lot. If that's, if that's the truth, brother Jason, if the spirit goes to be with the Lord and the body physically lay awaiting his second coming for the resurrection, what does our spirit do? Just set up there and wait on its legs? What does our spirit do? Sit up there and wait on his arms? Well, eh, you're thinking about it from, from a physical earthly standpoint, right? You're looking at it from, if I was merely a spirit hovering around, like we've watched too many ghost movies where there's a spirit looking for its body or looking to go to the next step, right? He's got something to accomplish and he's looking to get there. But to be absent with this body is to be present with the Lord. And that's beyond our comprehension because, listen, when we're present with the Lord, you know what we're going to be doing? Not looking for legs. We're going to be worshiping our Creator because it's the first time we've seen Him for who He is fully. We're going to be in an eternal state of glory because we're present with the glorious one. We're finally going to behold the glory of God that man on this sinful earth cannot behold with our eyes. We're finally going to look on the Savior's face. We're finally going to see the, the nail-scarred hands. We're finally going to see the one that paid for everything that we had done. And we're going to be seen as Jesus. That's what we're going to be seen as. We're not going to think of what we don't have and what we're waiting on. And you know why else we're not going to be waiting? This is going to make you go, whoo, it did me all week long. I struggled with this all week long. How do I reconcile this fact, how do I make this come together? We're going to be, whoo, blowed our minds. We're not going to be waiting. You know why we're not going to be waiting? Because waiting insinuates the concept of time. Do you know where there is no time? Heaven. Why ain't there no time in heaven? Because there ain't no end. One moment was the Lord is as a thousand years. So you know what? That was like a thousand years. We just had 10,000 years with the Lord just now. There's no end, there's no time. The time insinuates that there's a beginning and an end. It has to be finite. Did you know that our God is above the continuum of time? Scripture teaches us that He was, that He is, that He always will be. It says that there was nothing. And God who was when there was nothing said, Whoo! and there was something. 
And so to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. We're not waiting on our bodies because to wait would mean we had time. We're just going to worship and one day, bam, the body's going to come. And I feel like for most of us, we're going, man, I didn't even know I was missing that. I didn't even know it wasn't here. They say, can you run when you get to heaven? Sure, you can run when you get to heaven. Do you need to wait on your body? I don't think so. Why? Because the glorious God is there. The only running you're going to be doing is after Him. Let me stay in your presence, Jesus. Just say, oh, you're already in my presence. My light shines everywhere up here. So to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. There'll be no anticipation of the things that are coming. There'll be no looking. So when is this resurrection? When is the second coming of Christ? And I debated as to whether or not to get into this this morning, but I don't think that I can preach this text and and not touch this subject. So I'm going to deal with it, and and I I promise we'll dive into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in its entirety one day. We'll get into the nuances of the rapture and of the second coming in depth. But to give you a 10,000 feet overview, so the airplane's coming in and we're looking down on it for for the sake of time. When it says, at his coming at his coming at the end of verse 23 it's referring to the second coming of christ it's referring to the second coming and i believe the first event of the second coming is what many of us would call the rapture of the church first thessalonians 4 speaks of this it's a signless event it's a sudden event there'll be no announcement that says hey tomorrow at 12 there's going to be a rapture Tomorrow afternoon, pack your bags, you're going to be called away, okay? There's nothing that's going to happen, there's nothing that's going to do that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, for those of you who want to make notes. It says that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will first rise. That's what's going to happen. There's going to be a shout, there's going to be a toot, the dead people's going to scoot, all right? You got what I'm saying? It's all going to happen. All right, the dead in Christ are going to rise. And then the very next verse said, and then those who remain, who are also in Christ, will be called up. So what's going to happen? The Lord's going to say, hey, the horn's going to blow, the dead's going to go, and we're going to go, Tell you, I got ADHD. I did this in my office all week long. The Lord is going to descend. And there will be a snatching up. That's what that word means, a snatching up. You want to know what a snatching up is? Wait till one of my kids slides by disobedient. I'll do, I snatch them up, right? I had to snatch my boys up yesterday for a minute. They wouldn't quit fighting. The Lord will descend. There'll be a snatching, a process of all of us being caught up, and it'll be sudden. It'll be without sign. We won't know what's going to happen. You say, Brother Jason, will we be walking down the road, and it'll just suddenly we'll be gone? I don't know. I've never done it before, but I think snatching up means, whoo, snatched up. All right? Now, I interpret things physically, literally, and I make noises. I'm sorry. That's who I am. That's how I'm wired. I can't change. Now, there's some debate on the timing of this snatching up of his church. Does it happen before tribulation, Brother Jason? Is there a time of tribulation that's described in Revelation chapters 5 through 19 and then a snatching up of the church? The simple fact is this. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Because of the mystery of Christ and the mystery of eschatology and the mystery of the second coming and the mystery of the rapture, I would be arrogant at best, conceited at worst, to stand here and say that my interpretation of Scripture 
is perfect and somebody else's interpretation of this section of Scripture is wrong. I would have to be uh, extremely arrogant in my own intelligence, and I'm not arrogant in my own intelligence. But I do have an opinion, and I will share it with you. My opinion, and if anybody wants to know where I came up with this opinion, we can meet privately, we can meet public, I don't care, we'll talk about it, and I'll tell you where I got this. But I spent a lot of time in studying here. I find myself on this side of things, I believe in what's called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. That I, that, that's what I mean, that literally at some point, Jesus, remember all that, you know, hoo, ha, hoo, hee, hee, hoo, right? It's all going to happen. The dead in Christ are going to rise, then those who remain are going to rise, and then there will be a tribulation period of time. There are others who believe that all that's going to happen at his second coming. It's all going to happen at one time on the other side of the tribulation. Some even believe it's on the other side of the following millennial reign. Again, we'll preach through 1 Thessalonians 4, so we all know what those terms mean one day. But some people believe it all happens after that. Some people believe there's a rapture of the church and then a second coming after the tribulation. Here's what I believe. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I think scripture most points to that. But here's what I know. I'd be arrogant to say you have to see it the way I see it. I'm not arrogant to say this. There's going to be a rapture of the church. There's going to be a snatching up of those who believe in Christ. And if you ain't in that group, there's not going to be a snatching up of you. You're going to remain, and when you remain, you're going to face judgment. And when you face judgment, you're going to face eternity in hell. That's what I know. When's he coming? Suddenly. What day is it going to be? Don't know. Pre-trib, post-trib, after-trib, millennial, amillennial, pre-millennial. Don't know. Don't care. I know he's coming back, and I know you better be ready. That's what matters. So who are the redeemed? Those who are in Christ. And so we see Christ is our redeemer. We see the saints are the redeemed in Christ. So now let us look at this redemption of Christ. This whole scripture... Anybody else hot? <laughs> Whew. The whole scripture, and I don't mean the whole of this section of scripture. Ooh, I love this. I mean the whole of all of it, all right? Start in Genesis 1-1, finish in Revelation when he says, amen. And everything in the middle points to what this consummation is. This consummation is right here, and it's spoken about in a few places, but in 1 Corinthians 15, we get to look at the consummation of the redemption of Christ. And this is kind of a peak in these words. Verse 24 signifies the coming when it says, Then comes the end. Then comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father and puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. He must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Think about that. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Not just physical death. Spiritual death. The idea of death, the wages of sin is death. The death that was brought in by sin, the last thing that Jesus will put under his feet is death. Friends, that is victory. 
That's the picture of victory. The whole purpose of everything from the beginning to the end to to Jesus, the whole picture of Jesus, the whole story of Jesus, the, the purpose of redemption, the reason that everything God has tolerated from sinful man since the beginning of time, it's all culminated right here because the reason that God tolerated it all was because of this consummation that was coming. And what happens in this consummation? God is able to give to His Son, Jesus, a kingdom of perfection. Why is it a kingdom of perfection? But it's a kingdom made righteous by himself. And so God is able to give Jesus the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. The kingdom is the people that want to worship him, that love him, that adore him, that want to serve him. And because they love him and they worship him and they adore him and they serve him, they're able to live in perfect peace and perfect harmony. Why? Because the only thing they do is worship him and love him and serve him and adore him. You get the picture? Right? The kingdom is perfect. Why? We're all on the same page. Why? Because all we do is love him and worship him. Right? You get it? You see where I'm going? That is the consummation. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus bled. That's why he came again. That's why he's coming again. Right? All of it is to the plan of redemption. The consummation is this perfect kingdom that's described right here. Before it all ends, every human, every demon, every devil, every authority, every principality, every spiritual darkness, everything will be subject to Jesus. Every power will be abolished. And the King of kings, as he is described in Revelation, will reign supreme. That's the end of the millennial kingdom. The King of kings reigns supreme. And then Jesus does something else. Everything's put under his feet. The one who put them under his feet is his father, and he's accepted from that. E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, not A-C-C. Accepted, left out. God's not subject to be under the feet of Jesus because he gave him everything anyway. And then Jesus, in verse 28, when all things are subject to him, he gives it back to his father. And when he does that, what happens that God is all and is in all. You know what makes the kingdom perfect? It ain't you. It's God. The one who set it all in motion, when he set it all in motion, the consummation that is that it was all be perfected, to live in perfect harmony with him in relationship forevermore. So he's going to give it back to God. And everything will be found in total perfection. What a day that will be. When Christ Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face. The one who saved me by his grace. So how do we respond to all this? Right? Tricky message this morning. Brother Jason, I like it better when you get up there and spit and stomp and preach a New Testament message and all this. Well, this is a New Testament message. It was a letter to the church. Apparently God said we ought to understand that he's coming again and that Jesus Christ is the Lord of it all, including the resurrection. Jesus Christ is the Lord of it all, including the resurrection. Brother Jason, I get a little worked up when I think about the end times. It's a little tricky, a little confusing. I don't always understand it, and it's okay. doesn't mean that we don't need to try. doesn't mean that we don't need to seek that understanding. 
And there's not a more perfect time than now to understand this truth. Jesus Christ is coming, and everything will be subject to his rule and his authority. And so if you don't find yourself subject to his rule and his authority, you better get that way. Because I got news for you. Everything that needed to happen in order to fulfill the scriptures that Jesus could come back in any moment happened a long time ago. All scripture has already been fulfilled. It was fulfilled thousands of years ago. Jesus could come at any moment. You don't need to look to the world for signs. There aren't any left. It's all been done. Why? Because it's meant to be that way. We're supposed to not know. Because if we knew, we'd all live how we wanted to to the last minute. Why? Because God knew that's how we're wired. You know how he knew that? He made us. So you don't want to miss the call. The only one that we can face, whatever the end times look like, whatever the next days look like, the only way we can face those is with the assurance that comes in Christ alone, in Jesus alone, through salvation. And it says that all things will be subject to him, including death. You know, in the last few days... As a family, we've had to look at the sting of death impending as, as Liette's grandmother has neared her final moments here on this earth. It could be any moment. And it made me think. It's not the first time I've thought this thought, but it's the most recent, so it's the most vivid. How comforting is it to know that death has no sting for the body of a believer? That as that precious lady lay gasping for breath, I know that it'll be merciful for her to take her final breath because that means she'll take her first moment with the Lord. That she'll be present with the Lord just like that. And that's only because God is God and death, even death, is subject to him. The thing that we as people most fear, admit it, if you're alive, the thing that you most fear is death. Why? Because you're not real sure how that feels. You've never done it before, have you? But the beauty of it is, as a believer, you know it has no stink. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know when it happens, it's going to be glorious. And I thought, how in the world do you face death not knowing what's going to happen after death? And so I ask you to think of that this morning. Do you know that you know that you know that if you died this moment or if Jesus came back this afternoon that you'd be in that call that you belong to him? We all need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves that question. And if you're not, what do you need to know from this message this morning? He's coming back. And everything will be subject to him, even you. You want to be on the right side of that call. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.